psychology and spirituality. Begin with a quote or an epigraph to my talk by Thomas Berry. I think it's, a, it's virtually the motto of uh, eco-spirituality. The universe is a communion of subjects, not a collection of objects. Now, um, spirituality, of course, is difficult to define, as you know. But if I were to attempt a definition, I would probably refer to it as the art of making compassionate connections. The essence of spirituality is relationship, or in old-fashioned terms, love, as this operates at different levels. Spirituality refers to the bonds we make with each other, with the indwelling soul, with nature and the cosmos. Now, as it says up here, already I want to disagree with my definition. Perhaps the notion that we make these connections is too grand or heroic and puts too much emphasis on the human will. Some philosophers, such as Jacques Derrida, the French philosopher, have said that these connections are always already present. I quite like that phrase, always already present. And perhaps all we do is recognize them. All we do is recognize them. I've got up a little spider's web as a, an example of the interconnectedness of all things. If we believe, I think, that we generate these links, the spiritual journey can degenerate into an ego trip. So I want to rephrase this in more mystical terms. Spirituality is the art of recognizing and supporting pre-existing connections in the unity of creation. Uh, spirituality is seeing and respecting the oneness of all things. It's the ability to see beyond diversity and difference to the underlying uh, uh, unity or spiritual core at the heart of things. Now, um, as I was, I was talking the other night at Westminster Cathedral about Aboriginal spirituality, and I'll touch on it a little bit, but I won't repeat it uh, because I know some of you were at that talk I gave on Tuesday night. Aboriginal people in Australia refer to spirituality as the dreaming, the dreaming, which is the mythopoetic basis of all that happens in their lives. Used to be uh, translated by um, anthropologists, the, the term for the Aboriginal word, which is chukyupa, and in some different tribes, it's actually um, alchiringa. You might have heard of these terms, I'm not sure. It used to be translated into the English word dream time. 
and that's sort of caught on, that Aboriginal elders don't like the idea of dream time because it seems to fix their spirituality in some earlier time, whereas they want to see, quite rightly, I think, spirituality as a dimension of reality in the here and now uh, and in the future, not just in the past, but in the past as well. So they've dropped the term time and changed it to dreaming. I don't know if that can be pushed a little bit, can it? Uh, so that it's more... Yes, that's it. Thank you. Thanks. Central to the dreaming is the idea of uh, what's called in Aboriginal language, good, or pattern thinking. And by pattern thinking, Aboriginal people mean the interconnectedness of all things, uh, which is to, for them to think ecologically is the first link I'm making with spirituality and ecology. And this um, painting here is a good example of Aboriginal art, which is being done at the moment in Australia by Aboriginal people. And you can see that there are lots and lots of little nodal points, and they're all connected and interconnected. Um, this kind of art has many sorts of uh, interpretations. Some will see the, the nodal points as water holes, for instance, and the connections between them as pathways between those water holes. I'm not so sure about that interpretation because there aren't so many water holes in the desert. Um, you might have to travel 100 miles between water holes I'd prefer to see it more metaphysically as um, nodal points of spiritual life and the way that spiritual life is connected to everything else. So it depends who you're talking to as to how that kind of artwork is, um, is interpreted. To respect one good or the spirit, uh, says Aboriginal elder David Muljali, is to attend to the connections between all things. And a beautiful Aboriginal term, to look after country. That's the term they, they, they say. And of course, obviously, English isn't their first language. And many of them speak several Aboriginal languages. In fact, there are 550 Aboriginal languages, which is what's made communication between um, European Australians, like myself, and Aboriginal Australians so difficult because with 550 languages, it's very hard to get uh, much communication going. Unlike the situation in New Zealand, where there's only one language, which is Maori language, and th that has made the relations between European New Zealands and Indigenous New Zealands much easier. If there's only one language, well, then a lot of people can learn it including people like ourselves. But if there are 550 languages, it makes it so much more complicated. Many of those languages have very tragically died out over the last, uh, well, since the time the British arrived in Australia. Depending again on who you talk to, some people, of course, say the British invaded Australia as a sovereign nation and ran up the Union Jack and, and called it 
uh, a British colony. Now, in his moving apology, and it was a very moving apology uh, to Aboriginal people, I was certainly one of the many in tears as this was delivered, the then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said that Aboriginal people are the oldest continuing cultures in human history. And this is true. They're even older than any of the, uh, the, the cultures in, um, in Africa, such as the Kalahari Bushmen. They go back a minimum of 40,000 years of continuous history, and some say it's as high as possibly 60 or even 70,000 years. And it makes our Judeo-Christian culture look relatively modern and contemporary. However, Kevin Rudd did not point out that their survival, the survival of Aboriginal cultures, is due largely to the spiritual pact with the world called the dreaming, which bound people to earth in love and dedication. So there we have laughs all round. However, uh, there's a missing link, of course, between what's frequently referred to as white Australia and black Australia. And the link, of course, is that uh, white Australia, like white people almost everywhere, are struggling with this thing called spirituality, are struggling with religion. Uh, religion in Australia is in a similar position to religion in Britain, where you have about seven or eight percent of the population engaged in religion on an ongoing basis, the culture is overwhelmingly secular. And when um, an anthropologist from Sydney, William or Bill Stanner, wrote an, an essay called The Dreaming in 1953, he uh, <clears throat> reported on field work that he'd done up in the Daly River District, which is in the northern end of Australia, near Darwin, in the Northern Territory, he came across an elder who said, white man got no dreaming, him go another way. White man, him go different. Him got road, belong himself. These are very haunting words to me and for many other Australians. Um, in fact, you can see that Stanner's book is actually called White Man Got No Dreaming. Well, white man did have a dreaming, of course, um, called either Christianity or Judaism. Um, but it, was, it, it didn't stick long. And in fact, by about 1850s, 1860s, um, Christianity and Judaism in Australia were both in rapid decline. Um, I can talk more about that later. So the idea that white man got no dreaming is the Aboriginal perception that uh, the white people who um, settled, or as I said, depending on your politics, invaded the country, um, actually have no spiritual culture at all. So the missing link is the dreaming, or spirituality, in our terms. Spirituality is the basis of all that exists in Aboriginal cultures, and without it, there would be no ecological consciousness at all. I found this uh, book, The Missing Link to the Spirit-Filled Life, a 30-day teen devotional. There's a lot of concern now among many people about what's missing 
in our culture. And of course, young people are often the ones that most sorely feel this absence. Now, the efficacy of Aboriginal spirituality or cosmology can hardly be underestimated, seeing that it has nurtured and kept alive indigenous peoples across eons of time in inhospitable terrain, such as where I grew up in Central Australia, in the desert, um, and extreme climatic conditions where it can get to 55 degrees centigrade in the shade. And of course, there isn't any shade. So who knows how much it actually is in the sun. So the subtle bonds with nature, which they call the dreaming, make possible an extraordinary sensitivity to place. And these bonds are to be respected because I think they have genuine survival value. So it's the survival value of these spiritual bonds that needs to be accentuated. Whereas our modern Western scientific worldview which encourages the despiritualization of nature has an appalling record, of course, when it comes to sustainability, as you know. Now, what history tells us is that um, to be truly ecological, we need to become spiritual at the same time. Now, why is this so? Because spirituality governs our relations with the other, used in that philosophical sense, the other. The other meaning other people, the other meaning nature, other meaning landscape, the cosmos, and indeed all things visible and invisible. As Fritjof Capra put it, I heard him when I was last in London at the Essex Church. He was giving a talk on this. Um, he said, ecology and spirituality are fundamentally connected because deep ecological awareness ultimately is spiritual awareness. And of course, there are many books um, which you might be aware of, those of you who made this an area of personal or, and or professional interest, on spiritual ecology, sometimes also called eco-spirituality. Um, in the religious traditions, of course, it's referred to as eco-theology. The leading exponent would be uh, the person I mentioned earlier, Thomas Berry. But of course, Teilhard de Chardin um, is a great exponent of what is now called today eco-spirituality or eco-theology. This book sub is subtitled The Quiet Revolution. So why is... Um, uh, ecological awareness, ultimately spiritual awareness? And the answer is because only the spiritual can perceive and comprehend the interconnectedness of all things, which is what ecology is. Our normal, everyday awareness is essentially mechanistic and dualistic. It see th sees things incompletely, partially, not in relation to the totality or the whole. So in this regard, all ancient indigenous cultures, not just the ancient people from my country, but the ancient people from all countries, have to be our guides. The way forward is the way back to a vision of the world in which love breaks from its personal envelope 
to penetrate to the wider reality. Here's Thomas Berry again. This is a quote from his book called The Dream of Nature. Just now, one of the significant historical roles of the primal people of the world, he says, is not simply to sustain their own traditions, which is difficult enough given the impact of colonization and the way colonization has destroyed their cultures, but to call the entire civilized world back to a more authentic mode of being. I agree with this, all except for one thing. I'm not so sure about the word civilized because it would suggest that the indigenous people aren't civilized. <laughs> the entire civilized world needs to be, you know, pay attention to the indigenous world. I've, growing up in Central Australia, I was always astonished by how incredibly civilized Aboriginal people are at the level of spiritual and religious matters. And indeed, how, how barbaric my own culture was at the level of spiritual and, and religious matters. Whereas when um, the British arrived in Australia, a spiritually undeveloped culture, but very technologically developed, as you know in those days Britain ruled the waves and the British Empire was vast and, and, and very powerful, met a culture that was technologically undeveloped. You know, they, you might say they hadn't reached the stage of developing the wheel. So in fact they were what, what we would call in from a European perspective, Neolithic cultures but their spirituality was way more developed than ours. And I always think of the interaction between the British and Aboriginals as like mirror images of each other. Um, what the one had too much of, the other had very little of, and similarly what the other had a lot of, the other had very little of. So no wonder there was great conflict, misunderstanding. Of course there were many massacres, there were many uh, tragic incident, some of which are only being brought to life in, in Australian and British history just over the last few years. Now this doesn't mean that we have to, I think, dispense with our modern scientific consciousness. As you know, it's invaluable. I wouldn't be here um, by virtue of the aeroplane that carried me here without the advantages of modern science. No. So what we have to do, I think, is go back to pick up what we've lost, and this has been the cost of our overdevelopment of intellect and rationality at the price of the spirit. Um, as Ian McGilchrist here in Britain would probably say, we have to recover the lost hemisphere of the brain, you know, the poetic and mythic side of our nature, which has been eclipsed by rationality and logic. Don't know if any of you have read The Master and His Emissary. It's a magnificent book by Ian McGilchrist. Unless we can pick up this lost dimension. You, you, you've got it there, is it? Oh, fantastic. Yes. The chances of us becoming fully ecological, says Ian McGilchrist in that book, are very remote. So it, it's, it's a matter of great urgency. Now, uh, growing up in Alice Springs, which is the town right at the very heart of the continent of Australia, I, I saw that the um, animation of landscape impressed me enormously. Um, there, 
uh, understanding of the spiritual nature of, of nature, the spiritual reality of nature, was that it was filled with spirits. They were animistic religions, uh, what Christianity would frown upon as pagan or pantheistic. And yet, what was um, involved in that um, animistic religion is what I said earlier, was precisely, I think, what kept them alive over tens of thousands of years. So I knew that I couldn't adopt that particular form of spirituality as my own, as a Westerner who'd grown up uh, in a Christian uh, family. And then I went to university partly to discover more about what this animism was all about. And of course, back in those days, the 1960s and early 70s, um, knowledge hadn't caught up with spirituality. So all you got was um, a very arid understanding of things. The Aboriginal animation of the world was largely seen as the product of a primitive mind that the West had long rejected and superseded. For instance, in my literature class, the habit of animating the world uh, was referred to as personification. That is to say, they were personifying, um, imagining, if you like, uh, spirits in place, whereas there was no such things. These were purely coming from the heads of Aboriginal people. They were projecting human emotions onto inanimate things. In psychology, it was seen as pure projection. Um, and in philosophy, of course, it was uh, understood as anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism literally means from the, word, the Greek words anthropos and morph. Anthropos means human and morph means form. So they were projecting human forms onto the land. So I was very disappointed by my university education because that's all we could, could come up with. Because as Ian McGilchrist would, would say, uh, a whole hemisphere of our brain had gone to sleep. We didn't see the world except through the eyes of rationality and logic. So I knew this was wrong. Um, this is uh, very, very close to where I grew up. This was only uh, a small bike ride away from, from the house where I lived. That's the McDonald Rangers in the background, one of the ghost guns in the foreground. I knew deep down that we had to learn from this ancient culture that we lived in a dualistic world that sees psyche or soul as an aspect of the human mind only and that nature and the universe are devoid of soul. Our need is to overcome this, what's often referred to as Cartesian split because it was Descartes who, one, you know, one of the key figures of the European Enlightenment, who said the soul is something in human consciousness, but any soul experienced in the world, any soul experienced in nature, is merely projected there by our minds. There is no soul in the natural world. The only soul is in us. So this was, when I went to university, I'd hope it's changed a bit now. I think it has, actually in philosophy, in anthropology, in sociology, and indeed in psychology, there's much more respect for, the indi for indigenous knowledges, especially in countries like Australia, which are you know, transplanted European societies based on indigenous land.
Now, uh, after I uh, went to university in Australia, I moved to the United States to work with this man, James Hillman. And um, I also did analysis with him because he said, you know, we can talk and talk and talk, but um, it might be, might be more rewarding for you if you actually become my, we did say patient, because I, at that stage I was an academic and I wasn't really patient in search of a doctor, but I was in search of further work in the postdoctoral area of depth psychology and spirituality. He wrote, had written a book called The Thought of the Heart and the Soul of the World, a brilliant book which um, is still available. And he said, as we move further into soul, everything it touches becomes animated. In Latin, of course, soul is anima. And that's the important etymological connection between anima and animation. So whatever anima touches is animated. It's not just a linguistic connection, it's a philosophical one as well. At first, our inner lives and loves are stirred as we come into contact with the soul, he says. But this is a first stage. Soul yearns to move beyond the personal to unite with its transpersonal source. So there's a transpersonal and a personal dimension to soul. And he goes on to say that the aim of soul is to make us intimate with an ever-widening sphere of reality in order for us to develop a deep ecological awareness. The resources of spirit and soul have to be activated. So toward the end of his life, James Hillman, who began his, uh, his career as a psychologist, then became a philosopher, and toward the end of his life, his main interest was, in fact, ecology. And he, was, he pioneered this, uh, this area called eco-psychology. It was a very interesting discipline. Theodore Rozak has written a book called Eco-Psychology, and I used to use that as a textbook in my classes when I taught a course on eco-psychology at the university. So um, we have this prejudice in our culture that the soul is within. It's quite typical, isn't it, for us to all say, you know, if I've got a soul, if there is a soul, it's got to be within me. But it was through uh, working with uh, James Hillman, uh, he put me in touch with the Neoplatonic tradition, um, people like Plotinus and the Renaissance theorists such as Piccino and Bruno. Um, and they have the view, not that the, that the soul is within us, but indeed that we are inside the soul, that the soul is bigger than us. And then I started to ponder about this and think about this great length. And I started to think of the soul as like a, a sort of an inverted funnel. And you might say that when we first experience the soul, it feels to us to be very personal, you know, because particularly in the field that I was trained in, Jungian psychology, um, you first encounter the soul in your dreams, in your interiority, in your deepest thoughts, in your unconscious, and so on. And that's, um, you might say, the beginning of the journey. And as you go deeper into the funnel, 
it seems to me to widen out and broaden. And that's where uh, mystics are very, very important. I was recently reading Bede Griffith's uh, book called The New Vision of Reality, where he spoke about this too. He said he first experienced the soul through prayer and meditation and contemplation, and then gradually the world itself became enchanted. The world itself took on soul, a dimension that it hadn't had before. So it's like you have to go in in order to go out. You know, it's a sort of a paradox. You turn within and deepen the inner life in order to experience the enchantment of the world. So one of my books, I've written 14 books, um, some of which are on this topic. One uh, is called Re-Enchantment, because I think this is what happens when the soul um, is allowed to develop into its, uh, into its cosmic dimensions, uh, the world becomes re-enchanted. Uh, there's a New Age movement, which is all very interested in these topics, but the New Age movement is itself, I think, a product of our capitalist society. It keeps the sacred in the private realm. So uh, social justice doesn't loom large for the New Age, rather, all that is important for the New Age, it seems to me, is just to feel better about yourself and to have a personal salvation or a personal experience of enlightenment. And of course, the, the true spiritual journey is in fact an overcoming of that concern with uh, one's own self. So when I meet a lot of um, conservative religious people who say, oh, you shouldn't do meditation, it's just narcissistic and navel-gazing and all these sorts of things, you still hear this today. There's a lot of opposition to, to not only meditation from the East, but also meditation from our own Catholic and Anglo-Catholic and, and Benedictine traditions. But it's really a misunderstanding about interiority. You go in in, in order to go out. It's a, it's a two-fold movement. You don't go in in order to stay in. If you go in in order to stay in, that is indeed navel-gazing or or um, you know, narcissism, the, to use the psychological, psychopathological term. So I think what we require in Judeo-Christianity is a new understanding of theology. I don't know about you, but when I was a child growing up in the church, I was very much on that left-hand side. The universe was here and God was way, way up there. I can remember taking one of my first plane flights from Melbourne to Alice Springs, and a little girl was looking out the window and going like this, looking up, and her mother said, what are you looking for, darling? And she said, oh, I'm hoping to see God. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I listened, and the mother said, no, darling, he's way further up than that. <laughs> way further up. And then, and then I started to think, you know, we've got this wrong. Um, God is, is, we are in God. So now here's the difference between pantheism and panentheism. And this was very important for me, this difference. Am I hooked up here or can I walk? I can walk. This seemed to me to be close to the Aboriginal world that uh, I partly had a lot of access to. That is to say, pantheism. Pan means all, and theism means the divine. So it's the divine in all things. So God is, is the universe, 
and therefore uh, all indigenous traditions, uh, many indigenous traditions follow this. Now, a German philosopher in the uh, 19th century, in trying to reconcile the traditional monotheistic theology with indigenous cultures, came up with this term panentheism, which is such an important term for understanding the relationship between ecology and spirituality. Panentheism means all in God, as distinct from pantheism, which means God in all. Now, why are they different? Well, if pantheism says God's in all things, then there's, the God, there's no room for the transcendental dimension of God. God is just in all things, which is what Judeo-Christianity refers to as idolatry or paganism. But if all things are in God, then there's plenty of room, as it were, left over to experience God as a transcendental reality, not just as an immanental reality. And I think it's this panentheism. Uh, I was, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was um, at a mass at St. Aloysius in Oxford, which was the church of Gerard Manley Hopkins. You know, he said, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. It shines like the shining from shook oil. And I think Gerard Manley Hopkins was writing from a position of panentheism. And of course, a lot of uh, uh, people in Christianity still criticize that as pantheism. But we've got to educate people to realize the difference between these two important ideas. French poet Paul Elwad said, there is another world, but it is in this one. And that is a panentheistic idea. There is another world, but it is in this one. In other words, there's a different consciousness that can be uh, seen as, as uh, a dimension of the world we're already in. And that is the dimension where I think the spirit and God resides. St. Francis of Assisi, of course, who, uh, the, as you know, the Vatican very, very importantly, I think, made him the patron saint of ecology some years ago. He felt that God was in all things, but... <laughs> he was in danger of being burnt at the stake, despite the fact that he later became a saint, because in his day, the authorities worried that he was an animist who was finding uh, you know, the divine in trees and flowers and birds, brother, sun, and sister, moon, and so on. In fact, if you read the, the biography of Francis of Assisi, you'll see that a great many of his followers were in fact murdered by the Catholic Church as pagans and heretics because the, the God that the church then recognized was the God there, back up, way, way up, not in this world because this world was seen as fallen and sinful and therefore not possessing God. Now, I mentioned Teilhard before. Teilhard, of course, in, particularly in his book, The Hymn of the Universe, talks about this process whereby we can hopefully learn to discover the spirit in this world. He was a paleontologist as well as being a Jesuit priest. Now John Paul II and uh, our current Pope Francis have called for an ecological conversion. And in Laudato Si, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, I've read it, 
a number of times, he calls for a global ecological conversion. It's necessary to stimulate and sustain ecological conversion, says um, said John Paul II. This is a depiction, I think, of animism, the world of pantheism. This is the world that I grew up alongside in Central Australia. Now, one of the things that's occurred to me is there's a difference between spirits and spirit. Um, I, being a Westerner and coming, my father came from, my father's family came from Leicestershire. My mother's from Donegal in Ireland. So I've got a lot of Europe in me, although you don't see yourself as Europe, do you, anymore, after Brexit? Uh, uh, aren't you just a little island all by your lonesome self? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, Wordsworth is a very important figure in eco-spirituality. Indeed, probably you, like me, studied him in school, but I bet you didn't study him as an ecological poet. <laughs> but if you read him carefully, particularly lines written above Tintern Abbey, he talks of emotion and a spirit that rolls through all things. So the difference between spirit animating the presence of the world and spirits in trees, I can't come at spirits. It's a conversation I recently had with Father Lawrence Freeman in uh, Sydney just a couple of weeks ago. Um, he said that you know, we're too far removed from spirit, so we can't engage in that kind of re-enchantment. And I definitely agree with him. But we can actually, with the aid of the, the so-called romantic poets of Britain, such as William Wordsworth, move toward the sense of spirit. This is a fellow who's influenced me a great deal, Lynn White. He said, more science and technology are not going to get us out of the present ecological crisis until we find a new religion, he argues, or rethink our old one. Well, I don't think we need a new religion. I do think we need to rethink our old one along the lines of panentheism. Since the roots of our trouble are so largely religious, the remedy must also be essentially religious, whether we call it that or not. So Lynn White, who was professor of medieval history at Stanford University, talks in this essay about the historical roots of our ecological crisis. Einstein is very interesting. He says, we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we used when we created them. I think that's so very important. And there's so many people trying to develop green technology and green science and, and green politics. It's, everything's going green a bit at the moment. But you could say it's using the same dualistic consciousness that created the ecological problem in the first place. And so I often think of Albert Einstein. We need more than simply a tweaking of the consciousness we have. We need to develop a new kind, well, not new, it's a very ancient kind of consciousness that got overlaid, particularly during the course of the intellectual enlightenment. In the Renaissance, they conceived the world soul in this particular fashion, as a feminine figure, you'll see there, linking up what's called the chain of being, linking to the God above, the transcendent God with the cloud, through the figure who looks a lot like uh, our, our Mother of God, Our Lady, actually, 
with the stars, very much like uh, the way uh, Virgin Mary is described in the book of Revelation. And then you can see there below is a monkey and then the world. So the, the soul of the world is seen as the thread that connects all things together. Now, spirituality is a personal thing, as I said, is a very popular view today. I think it's true and not true. So that's why I've said at the top, yes and no. Of course, spirituality is personal in the sense that it's about our meditation. It's about our inner exploration. It's about our contemplation. But if it just remains personal, then it becomes an ego trip rather than a spiritual journey and certainly doesn't become ecologically sound if it remains personal. This is a fellow in Britain that I've been very influenced by. And in fact, I'm going to meet him in a couple of days' time. Does anyone know Jonathan Ralton? Yeah, yeah, he's a fascinating fellow. I believe he was a chess champion or something in Britain. And he's turned towards spirituality. Actually, you can see the chess pieces behind him there in that, uh, in that photograph. He's looking very, very earnest in that uh, photo. And he wrote a work um, published here in London called Spiritualize, Revitalizing Spirituality to Address 20th Century Challenges. It's a very important book and I can strongly recommend it. I think it's uh, available in hard copy form and it's also available on the net too. I downloaded it for free. Mar marvelous things you can find on the internet. A lot of rubbish there too. It's a bit like an open sewer, but um, it, it's also good. He says, many recognize that the world's major problems have spiritual elements that are not adequately acknowledged or addressed, partly because we don't seem to know how to conduct a debate at that kind of fundamental level. So he's been thinking about this, and I think he's absolutely right. And he goes on, he says, this spiritual perspective matters now because the challenge of finding a more substantial and grounded public role for the spiritual arises in the context of weakening of public institutions, he means the churches, acute ecological crises and widespread political alienation and democratic stress. And yet as things stand, without the forms of tradition, and institutional support afforded by religion, it's hard to see how the spiritual could be anything other than a private matter. See, this is the tragedy of our times. Lots of young people are saying, spirituality, yes, religion, no. And I understand it, because religion can be very boring, particularly if you're 18 or 19 years old, you don't know how to relate to it. It becomes less boring as you get older. I mean, I used to try and bring my, my children to church, but I gave up trying because they said, Dad, we just don't do this. This is not part of our culture. But if you have spirituality but not religious, which is a category, of course, it's one of the biggest categories in Britain at the moment, then you have spirituality in danger of being much more personal and confined to the private realm. It's very hard to see how a culture that was spiritual but not religious is going to have any impact on society at all. How is it going to work towards social justice if it's not uh, collectively organized in, in groups and, and, and institutionalized? And although institutions have their drawbacks, they have enormous positive advantages. It's very hard to describe or to uh, 
uh, argue for these positive elements for young people, as I found trying to teach young university students for the last 35 years. And he goes on, he says, with only a shallow engagement in the subject, we, reach, we risk branding the spiritual as something insubstantial and completely distinct from religion, rather than something important that stands in a critical relation to it. I think that's a really important point he's making. Our collective understanding of spirituality is oblique and nebulous when we need it to be fundamental and robust. One of my colleagues in, in the UK is Robert Siegel, who lives right up at Aberdeen and is professor of religion and theology there. And he said that if spirituality is completely pulled away from religion, it, it will evaporate like the morning mist and have no impact on society or the common good and no impact on morality and ethics and, as I said, social justice. And so I think this is the danger we face at the moment. It's all the rage now to separate spirituality from religion. I do sympathize with it, but ultimately I think that the two of them should be, as uh, Jonathan says, in critical relation to each other. In other words, they should be in dialogue with each other.